1 Samuel chapter 8 this evening. We continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Very odd study for us, but it's about as expositional as any you'll ever see as we go verse by verse. I told somebody the other day, this is my best J. Vernon McGee impression. Now, for some of you, you have no idea who that is, but he's a man that had a radio broadcast, and uh, he just went verse by verse, and he'd say, friends, I'm just so glad to thank you that you tuned in today. That's how he talked, and uh, he just went verse by verse. He's very practical and very helpful, and so that's what the plan for this study is. We go verse by verse and try to understand the underlying messages of familiar passages that we've probably heard in Sunday school all of our life. The sermon series gets its title from the fact that God has been requested by His people that He would provide for them a king. Now, it was never God's uh, purpose, if you will. It was not His original design, I should probably say it like that, that, they, that the children of Israel would have a king. He wanted to be their king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Every other nation had a king. But God wanted to be His people's king, and we'll discuss some of that tonight. Next week, we'll get into the selection of that king. But this week, we come to chapter 8, where they begin to request of Samuel that, that Samuel would appoint to them a king. Now, I want to say, just by way of clarification, we never really put God in any conflicts. God is never up in heaven uh, worried about what he's going to do to fix the situation. And what's amazing is God takes bad situations and turns them for good, much like uh, Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And we can see that though it may not have been God's original design for Israel to receive a king, God would eventually, through this bad decision that Israel makes here, send to them a king that would deliver them, not from Rome, not from Babylon, but from the greatest bondage that they had ever been in, and that was the bondage of sin. And it was in Messiah, Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, that God would make a bad request turn to the good for His people. So we start in verse number 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel demands a king. The Bible says, And it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now we've got to understand something here, though Samuel is without a doubt one of the godliest and most faithful men in all of Scripture. He is not a perfect man. And it's very likely here that Samuel makes a grave error. It's very likely that what Samuel does in this moment in time is sin. The reason I say that is because men never appointed judges. Samuel was certainly a judge, but he had been supernaturally and divinely risen up by God. In fact, we even studied, I think it was two chapters ago, as the Bible says that God uh, began to give him influence among the people. And, and as, his same, as his name and, and influence grew, God did that of his own doing. God raised these judges up. For Samuel to take the presumptive uh, 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 responsibility upon himself to appoint his own sons, that is rather wrong, uh, just if we look at the entire scope of the office of judges. Not only was it not something that uh, men appointed, but it was something that fathers certainly did not pass on to their sons. 
There is not another recorded case in Scripture where the father passes that role or office off to his son. And then as you study about these two young men, they are by no means Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons we studied much earlier. They are not by any means good men. And they, they themselves, spiritually speaking, were not qualified for the office of being a judge. So it's very likely that Samuel makes a grave error here. And what I find interesting as we compare Samuel, uh, a faithful and godly man, uh, to Eli, who, by the way, I want to remind you, was a faithful and godly man. As we compare these two men, it seems like they both made a similar mistake. It's that they had a blind spot when it came to their children. Like they were able to see all the problems in the nation, but not in their own family. And I'll just tell you this, if Eli, a godly man who served God faithfully his whole life, and Samuel, a godly man, a faithful man, his whole life, if these two men can make this mistake, I wonder how many of us might be able to make this mistake. I wonder how many of us can look at everybody else's kids and everybody else's families and say, you know what, they've got some real problems. But when it comes to our family, we just think they've hung the moon. You know, in my family, we're just thankful nobody's hanging from the moon at the end of the day. But but maybe, and parents, let me encourage you. Pray that God would not, uh, pray that God would open your eyes to potential problems in your family's life. Pray that God would give you a sense of things that are very uh, bad for your children. I remember the year my parents took me out of public school and put me into Christian school. It was, without a doubt, unquestionably, the best decision my parents ever made for me. Now, I have a very good friend seated right back here on the back row, Cody Sears. We went to school in first grade together. He went through godly, and I praise the Lord that I have a godly friend who is here tonight, and we have grown up together, and we have been in this church together. For Cody, he was able to go through public school. Praise the Lord, and I commend him for it. I'm just telling you, I couldn't have. So when my parents took me out of fifth grade because they began to see things in my life that were not good, they put me in a private school, Christian school environment, and it was the best decision they ever made for me. You know what they did? They didn't have a blind spot. They began to see things in my life that they said, you know what, this is fifth grade. The trajectory he's on, he's going to be in prison by seventh. And they saw that. And I thank the Lord that they didn't have a blind spot when it came to me. But man, parents, we need to be in prayer that we don't think that everybody else's kids are the ones that are always wrong. That when our kid hits the other person, we complain that their face was hard enough to hurt our child's hand. You know, we sometimes get that way, and and these men had this blind spot. He makes a mistake here, as Eli had done much earlier, in lightly reprimanding his own sons. Now let's go to verse number 2. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. The name Joel means Jehovah is God. Certainly, when you contrast what Israel was doing in idolatry at this time, it seems very appropriate that Samuel named his son Jehovah is God. Meaning, there is none other besides Jehovah God. 
He is the Lord of all. We should have no images before Him. We should not bow down to any other but Him. He is Lord. And so He names His firstborn that. His secondborn He names Abiah, which means Jehovah is Father. Jehovah is Father. Now to us New Testament believers, this is nothing new. To us, this is not at all transcendent or revolutionary, but in the Old Testament, it is very rare for God to be called Father on a personal basis. In fact, when you study the Old Testament, you'll find that the primary uh, roles in which God was Father of something, He was called the Father of Israel, uh, the nation. In other words, He bore the nation. It was His will that He selected Abraham and then all the patriarchs. God was the originator, the founder, the father of Israel. And that's a great thing, but it is not nearly as great as the idea that God in heaven is a personal father. I want you to think about this. Uh, Christians sometimes ask questions about... You know, we, 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 we focus on our daily breads and they generally get no deeper than croutons, you know. And that's good if you do daily bread, but, but can you just truly allow your mind to park on this concept? That Almighty God, who upholds the worlds by the very word of His power, has given you the privilege and has chosen you to call Him Father. And not in some uh, distant, non-intimate uh, sense. God says, we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. A very close and intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. But if you were an Old Testament believer, this type of th- talking and this line of thinking would be absolutely mind-blowing. Friend, don't ever get used to the fact that God allows you to call Him Father. And He delights in calling you His child. Think on that. The next time you get a little down in your mouth and, and, and you think, oh, life's just falling apart and it's all going to pieces, I want you to know that you have a daddy in heaven that is concerned about you, that cares for you, and is willing to answer your prayers. That is our Father in heaven. Uh, next verse number three, the Bible says, And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Now, it seems to indicate just by the phraseology of the verse that the young men maybe started well, but when given some influence and when given a role and responsibility, the money began to slide under the table to persuade decisions. To uh, somewhat tip the table, if you will, they took bribes. And this only came as a result of the influence that uh, Samuel had given his sons. They turned aside, nonetheless, much like those uh, sons of Eli. Uh, and, And so we see here that these young men do not do right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse number four. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old. Appreciate you. What a compliment. 
Somebody today, as soon as I came in, many of you don't know, I had my 32nd anniversary yesterday. Thank you for all the text messages. If you didn't text me, you're a bum. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Uh, but, but I turned 32 years old yesterday. As soon as I walk into the auditorium today, you know what somebody told me? You're looking kind of old, preacher. Well, praise the Lord. You know, for a young man, that's a compliment. For an old man, that's an insult. But, but here they come to Samuel and they say, uh, Hey, Samuel, you're getting up in years. You're not over the hill. You're on the downhill slide. But what do we do? They begin to ask him, You're old and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. That phrase, to judge us like all the nations, is such a disappointing viewpoint of what is of how Israel viewed themselves. God had said to Israel, I want you to be a peculiar treasure unto me above all nations. Think about that. You're a treasure. In a gold mine full of dirt, you are the diamond in the rough. God wanted that for Israel. Israel did not display God's glory when acting like everyone else. When trying to be like everyone else, Israel displayed God's glory and the magnificence of His power when they were being like nobody else could be. A very small nation, a very insignificant nation, being mightily powered by God Almighty. And in that we see God's plan. As, as the Queen of Sheba comes all the way from her country just to see the glory of King Solomon. Why did she do that? Because God had done something that was unexplainable. But it's when Israel said, you know what, we'd just like to be like everyone else. We don't want to cause a ruckus. We don't want to cause a stir. We just, we just want to be like everyone else. And in that moment, they were undermining the very plan that God had had for them from the beginning. We move forward. In verse number 6, after hearing that they wanted a king... But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. I want you to think about verse number 6 long and hard, because this is one of those verses in our study and our devotions. We just read right over. But the thing displeased Samuel. Have you ever had anything displease you? Maybe when your child does something ridiculously foolish. I was putting my daughter Bailey to bed the other night. And I noticed as I was making up her covers and, and putting her blankets down, I noticed that the back wall behind her bed had been turned into a tic-tac-toe board. They had just drawn tic-tac-toe squares all over the wall. Uh, I was a little disappointed, to say the least. You ever had anything frustrate you? Anything displease you? Maybe at work you've had something go wrong. Maybe somebody disappoints you, a business associate, do something that was kind of underhanded towards you. You ever had anything displease you? What was your reaction? Let me ask you, what was your first reaction? Generally speaking, what we do is we look for the nearest pillow to hit or to scream into. We begin to take our anger and our displeasure out on our dog, and sometimes that pours out over into the children. The children have done nothing wrong, and they say, Daddy, do you want some tea? Why would I want tea? But it has nothing to do with the kids. It was Larry at work that did it. And have you ever been displeased? Has anything caused you frustration? What was your reaction? Listen, this is very important. Here was Samuel's. 
And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. There is no indication given that he even debated with them. That he even said something back to them like, you know, this is a bad idea, but, you know, I'll go talk to the Lord about it. There's no indication that he did that. When displeasure and things that frustrated him happened, what did he do? His first initial reaction was to pray about it. Boy, imagine the amount of bad words we could save ourselves from ever saying if we just went to the Lord in prayer when things displeased us. Imagine how many relationships could be salvaged if we never got to the point where we're throwing hateful word grenades at people. If we just say, you know what? I'm going to take a step aside and, and, and we'll talk about this later. I want to go pray about it. I wonder if we could have the spiritual discernment about ourselves and the wisdom and being led of the Spirit and just say, you know what? The Lord tells us that we are to pray about everything. We just... just you know, it, it, Jesus taught a parable unto this end. What end? That men ought always to pray. You say, what, what should I be praying about? Well, uh, Samuel did it when things displeased him. What should I be praying about? Well, the Bible says all things. <laughs> so what should you pray about? Anything. But truly, if we were honest, most of the time our first reaction is not prayer. We say things out of anger and hatred and toxicity that, that are very hard to come back from. A friend that is offended, a brother offended, is harder to be won than a walled city. How we can say things in the heat of the moment that we would just, we really didn't even mean. But we should just go pray about it. Verse number six, Samuel prayed unto the Lord. Verse number seven. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people, in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should reign over them. Has it ever occurred to you, friend, that nothing has ever occurred to God? I started the sermon by saying that God's not truly in any sort of conflict here. This is all a part of His grand design and His plan. This doesn't catch a sovereign God off guard. So when he says, okay, Samuel, go appoint to them a king, this was stuff that God has already been preparing for. Back in the book of Genesis in chapter 49, verse 10, the Bible gives us sort of a prophecy to the kingly line of the sons of Abraham. As the Bible says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter being the royal rod that those kings hold as they make decrees and as they're pictured. That symbolized royal authority. And so when Genesis 49, which precedes the chapter we're reading, by many, many years says that the scepter will never depart from Judah. You know what it's saying? Judah, or the tribe of Judah, will always be the kingly tribe. Well, how do you have a kingly tribe, but you have no king? Because this day, when Israel demands for themselves the king, does not catch our God off guard. Furthermore, when the Bible goes on in Deuteronomy, as the law is being given in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the Bible says this, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me. Wait a second. This is at the giving of the law. This predates Samuel many, many, many years. And yet God says, one day you're going to require a king. I know you are. Like as all the nations that are about me, 
thou shalt say in any wise, set him king over thee. He gives then requirements and a sort of prescription for what this king would look like and how this king would behave. But that's long predates this day when they require a king. Nothing catches our God off guard. He who inhabits tomorrow cannot be surprised by what happens today. We find in verse number uh, 8 that these people uh, think they've caught God off guard. But uh, God says, they have not rejected thee, they've rejected me. Meaning, Samuel, don't take it personal. It's not that they don't like you, it's that they have rejected me. Verse number 8, according to all the works which they had done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. Now why does he say, Samuel, you're going to give them a king just like they've requested. I'm going to allow it to happen. And you're going to be an instrumental part in that, but I want you to solemnly protest unto them. Meaning, go tell them exactly how you feel about this. Go tell them what I think about this. Because what God is doing in this moment is making Israel responsible for their own actions. He's telling them, this is what you should expect. I can imagine these elders of Israel, as they sat down to figure out if they wanted a king, they probably had a pros and cons list. And on one side of the paper, they had pros to a king. And on the other side, they had cons. Well, at this point in time, all the elders of Israel are so excited about having a king, they can't figure out any cons. It's just all good. It's all gravy, baby. It's going to be great that we have a king. And yet what God says here is, I want you to consider the cons. And when you regret this day, when you've set a king over you, you won't have Samuel to blame for it. And you certainly won't be able to blame me for it. You'll have to look inside yourself and see that it was you that demanded it all along. He's making them responsible for their own actions. With information comes accountability. And so, verse number 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. And I want you to pay very close attention to the next three words, because they become the sermon title, if you will, of Samuel. He will take. This is the manner of the man that you're going to have as king, that he shall reign over you. He will take. Well, what will he take? He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. I want you to notice verse number 13. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks, to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth part seed of your vineyards and and, and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth part of your sheep and ye shall be his servants and ye shall cry. He will take and you will cry. Cry out in that day because of your king which ye shall have chosen. And the Lord will not hear you 
in that day. So let's just go over the list. Well, he's going to take their sons. He's going to take their sons to fight their battles. He's going to take their sons to, 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 to uh, work in their fields. He'll take his daughter, their daughters to work in the houses and to, to be cooks and, and to work there in those facilities. He'll take the tenth part of their seed and of their vineyards and of their olive yards. He'll take their men servants and he'll take the tenth of their sheep. And all that God is doing here is contrasting earthly kings with himself. He's saying earthly kings require consumption. All earthly kings are selfish. They take. They have to take. I mean, it's really not their fault. You say, well, was King David a, a, a selfish king? Well, in one way or another, because kings establish a sort of government. You know what government requires to exist? Resources. The government can't give away free things. I know ours says they can. And this may surprise you. But somebody, somewhere, has to pay for it. If it's free education, it ain't free. If it's free food, it ain't free. Until education grows on trees and food grows on trees, I guess some of that does. But until money grows on trees, they cannot do what they say they can do. And so all governments have to take. That's, that's the nature of them. That's why our Lord said, well, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. If Caesar is going to have a government, he has to have his tribute. And the Lord sees nothing wrong with this. He established government, but for government to function, it has to have resources. And so the king's going to take, and the king's going to take, and the king's going to take. And God says in this moment, but I am not like those earthly kings. Because as your king, I give. I give and I give and I give. And when other kings require servants... I will become a man to become a servant. When everybody else wants to be served, I will gird myself with a towel and I will wipe some of the filthiest feet in all the land just to prove what it is for a minister to be humble. Our God is not like those earthly kings. And in this moment, He's trying to show the nation of Israel by contrasting Himself and the way He rules over His people with the way that earthly kings rule over their subjects. Unfortunately, like many people do in our day and age, the people reject the message of the preacher. Nevertheless, the people refused in verse 19. What did they refuse? Well, they refused to obey the voice of Samuel. It was God's words said by the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, they, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. If there is one phrase that rubs me the wrong way in this whole chapter, it is, we need a king to fight our battles. What, did you forget everything God has done for you? Had it not been for your sovereign king, you'd still be in Egypt. Had it not been for those ten plagues and his wonderful deliverance out of the land of Egypt, had it not been for him 
fighting your battle at the walls of Jericho, had it not been for your God frequently and constantly over and over again, miraculously leaving for you the victory. Many times you didn't have to shoot an arrow. Many times you didn't have to swing a sword. But God delivered you the victory. And now, in this moment, they say, but we really need a king to fight for us. What I find hysterical, and I believe God has a sense of humor in these things. King Saul will be their first king. And though he is head and shoulders above everybody, you know what we see him doing at most battlefields? Sitting in the background, staring at giants. Remember, it was David says, is there not a cause? Oh, is someone not going to go down there and fight? This giant, he's cursing our God. He's saying that we're dogs. Is nobody going to go down there? And King Saul's like, you know, I wish somebody would step up. Sadly enough, their king that they get is not willing to fight their battles. And the latter half of his ministry and his reign is not defined by him fighting their battles. It's defined by him fighting his own. Chasing down David from cave to cave, trying to kill the successor to his throne. That's the nature of kings. God here is certainly disappointed as his people reject him and embrace this earthly king. And Samuel heard all the words in verse 21 of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man into his city. As I've said, we go through the chapter, and we'll try to understand all the terms and kind of the, the underlying themes of the chapter, but always will come to, uh, to very practical spiritual applications. So I want to talk to you about how to make decisions. If you have a pen and paper, and you would all take notes in church, these are four, four steps I want you to always take when you make a big decision in life. From this passage, I think we learn a few things. Now, these aren't the practical steps, but we do learn some things. Number one, we learn that decisions that are practical are not always beneficial. You understand what I'm saying? These people, they say, Samuel, you're getting old, and we don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, at any moment, you could pass away, and then we're going to be high and dry. And your sons, they don't walk in your ways. They're not like you. They're not godly. They, they're just bought for the highest bidder. Samuel, uh, we really have been thinking and we've all deliberated. And it makes a ton of sense that you would appoint for us a king. Really, their arguments are pretty ironclad. Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways. At this point in time, Samuel's somewhere around 60 years old. Uh, so, is he old? Yes. Did his sons walk in his ways? No. But what they failed to understand is, though they could not see God's solution, God had a solution. We find a bunch of people trying to walk by sight and rejecting what it is to live by faith. They don't know what's happening in Jesse's pasture. They don't know that there's a little lad that's slinging rocks at the nearest tomato can just to prove and that he can fight battles. They have no clue. And they say, well, Samuel, you can't be the guy. And, and after all, uh, uh, your sons can't be the guy. I know they started well, and I know you named them after God, but, but we, we just don't have a solution. We can't see a solution. So practically speaking, it just makes sense to have a king. 
But practical answers are not always proper answers. It doesn't mean that just because it makes sense, it's going to work out. We find that decisions that are practical are not always beneficial. And secondly, we find this. Decisions that are permitted are not always blessed. God allows them to have a king. He says, Samuel, hearken unto their voice. But you know what he says? He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. And at the end of the day, you're going to cry out. Because you're not going to like what you get. And maybe there's somebody there, one of those elders, maybe it's one of the chief elders that said, Look, God bent to our will. He never wanted us to have a king before, but now He's allowing us to have a king. We sought Him, we we wanted it, and God changed His will to ours. No, God didn't change. God never wanted you to have this king. You fought for it, tooth, line, and sinker. You you fought for it, okay, great. You have it, all right, great. You're going to regret it. You're not going to enjoy it. And ultimately what's going to happen in the nation is this fight for the throne will take 12 united tribes and split them right down the middle. Two over here, ten over here. And they become enemies. Why? For the throne. You're not going to like what you get. You're going to get what you got. Uh, You're going to get what you prayed for. You're going to get what you wanted. But you're not going to like what you get. That's what happens. So we find decisions that are practical are not always beneficial. And decisions that are permitted are not always blessed. So how can you make good spiritual decisions? I believe these four truths are ironclad. You do it in everyday life. If it's a small decision, you do it. If it's a big, giant decision, buying a home, deciding your call in the ministry, where to go next, these are ironclad biblical truths. Here's four steps. Number one, pray about it. You know what's ironic? I never find these elders praying about anything. The only prayer prayed in this chapter is when Samuel goes to the Lord after being frustrated. These elders approach Samuel based upon their logic and their reason. Makes sense, it's good, but they did not pray about it. Let me ask you a question. I don't mean to insult you. Because I think all of us fall guilty in this area. How many decisions in your life do you believe you have adequately bathed in prayer? I want you to think about that. I'm not just saying how many decisions have you prayed over. I mean, how many decisions were you like that neighbor that came at midnight and began to knock on the door and then they turned him away, but you, you just kept knocking because you got to feed your guest? How many of those, because of your persistence, God eventually answered your call? How many of the big decisions in your life and the small ones have been adequately bathed in prayer? Here's what I find most Christians doing. They pray about it and they think they've checked that box so they move on. There's no persistent coming. There's no willingness to persevere in prayer. There's none of that. We just pray about it, and that's the real spiritual people. The unspiritual people don't pray about it at all. They make major life decisions without ever consulting God at all. I think that's what happens here. So number one, pray about it. Number two, pursue spiritual counsel. 
I believe this with all of my heart. This has been a standard of my life. I have about, about five men in my life that whatever major decisions in life I make, all of them I consult. I get their advice. I get their viewpoint. All of these men have major life experience. I believe all of these men are spiritual. And I'll go to them and I'll ask them, what do you think about this? I I still consider myself a young man and I'm certainly getting older, but it is the height of pride to think that you know everything and that you can be taught nothing. I told my dad something the other day. I said, I'm going to borrow all 50 years of your experience until you're not here anymore. I said, I'm going to stick with you. And I want you right there beside me because I am going to milk every, every ounce of wisdom and every bit of experience that you have because why would I not? It would be foolish to say, no, nah, I'll just learn the lessons when they come my way. Oh, can you imagine the heartache that could be spared if I would just say, listen to a little counsel. Years ago, I believe spiritual advisors and spiritual counselors was a, uh, a standard within the church. People always sought them. I remember Brian Cohn coming to my dad when he bought his first pickup truck just to ask him, how you do it? And you say, that's foolish. No, it's not. Because Brian Cohn needed help. And guess what? He went to a guy who's not only spiritual, but has bought a lot of pickup trucks. Brian Cohn was wise in seeking after wisdom. But today in the church, we get so private, we don't want to share any personal matters, that uh, we just handle matters ourselves. And we get into a whole world of hurt because of it. Now this is not an unscriptural principle. Because you know what the Bible says about this? The Bible says, where there is no counsel, the people fail. No counsel, you are assuring failure. But where there is counsel, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Okay, you seek no counsel for major life decisions, here's what happens. You are destined to fail. You seek counsel, there's safety in counsel. You say, I just don't want everybody knowing my business. Are we a family or not? I mean, do we just talk about being the body of Christ and those that care for each other and encouraging to one another to good works? Is that all just words that mean nothing and are empty? Look, I tell people all the time, we're in this together. I am your biggest cheerleader. I want nothing but the best for you. I'm, I'm cheering you on. I'm praying for you daily. I want nothing but the best for you. You come to me with something and and you say, Brother Andrew, what do you think about this? I promise you the last thing I'm going to do is go to the neighbor down the street and be like, you will not believe what a church member asked me today. In fact, you can ask my wife. Nine times out of ten, she has no idea what I discuss with other church members. She has no idea. I don't discuss private things with her. I don't discuss your business matters, your personal matters with her. Because if you've trusted me with that, I believe that it's a... What's that? Attorney-client privilege, Brother Adam? Is that right? All right. Well, yours is binding in the court of law. Mine's binding in the courts of heaven. I'm not looking to spill the beans, but I just believe that there's safety in counsel. I do think, though, you need to make this a standard of your life that all the counsel you receive would be spiritual. 
the book of Psalms is filled with spiritual advice. I mean, it is a poetic book and it has a lot of uh, uplifting things, but there's a lot of advice in there too. And you know how verse 1 begins? Chapter 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Verse number 1, chapter number 1. Hey, there's a lot of good advice coming here, but if you're going to get advice, make sure it's godly. Surround yourself with spiritual people, but seek advice from only spiritual people. So, pray about it, number one. Number two, pursue spiritual counsel. Number three, and this is very important, this is something that you probably don't consider much, but proactively be faithful. Here's the problem. If we feel, I'll just use this as an analogy, and you can take it for what it's worth. Sometimes when we feel like God might be moving us in a direction, our mind begins to go there more frequently than it should. If you look at this chapter, I did not make this up. Uh, verse number 7 says that they had rejected God. Uh, they had rejected not Samuel, but they had rejected the Lord. Verse number 8, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt. This has been the standard operating procedure for them, Samuel. I never wanted them to have a king, but frankly, the way they've looked, the way their attitude, they've always rejected me. This is the normal thing of their life. They've always looked forward to the day they're going to have a king. Let me give you some advice. Be where your feet are. In our world, it's so easy to be detached from the place and the moment that we're in. You want me to show you the key number one contributing factor to detachment? This. Your phone, your device, your computer, your tablet, whatever. You can, in our world, and I believe it's trained us, that you can be anywhere you want to be, no matter where you are. You see what I'm saying? You can be in a doctor's office looking hotels up in Hawaii. Now you tell me if you're really in that doctor's office or you're thinking about the cool winds blowing off that sand. You are in that moment, not in that place. You are where your mind is. So wherever your feet are, you make the decision that your mind and your heart would be there too. If God is moving you, He will move you. It will be undeniable and it will be irresistible. If you stay faithful where you are... But what I find so often is people that begin to sense something, they begin to long for something more, their heart goes long before their feet ever do. And sometimes this results in staff members on church staff that haven't been with us for years. I mean, they've been here, they've been vacuuming, they've been going soul winning, they've been doing the things that they do, but their mind and their heart have been in another ministry for years. And you say, why are you calling out staff members? Because I've seen it play out over and over again. And they become unproductive in the place that they are. And they aren't even affecting the place that they want to be. They're just caught in this ministerial purgatory, somewhere between where God wants them to be and where God is moving them. What a shame that is. Be where your feet are. 
if, if you're not so inclined to ministerial uh, analogies and illustrations, consider this. If you are in a home and you're looking for another home, don't get so far ahead of yourself. Don't get your heart so set on the new home that it's got to have two garages and uh, a swimming pool for the dogs and a slide so that uh, everybody can go down at the same time. Don't get your heart so set in that moment that you fail to appreciate the house that you have. But I promise you around this world there are thousands and millions and billions of people that don't have near the home you're living in right now. So don't let, don't let your feet get ahead of your heart. Make sure, don't let your heart get ahead of your feet. Be where you are. Stay faithful in the place that you are currently at. And if God's going to move you, if God's going to give you a direction, He will reveal that to you. I say this frequently. I say it in private counsel. I'll say it from behind the pulpit. I cannot find in God's Word somebody who is legitimately seeking God's will, and yet they fail to find it. I've read from cover to cover, and I've never found the man that literally with all of his heart, pursues after God, and God's just up in heaven going, (laughs) I got a dollar for you. State Farm commercial reference. I don't know if y'all got that. A couple of you did. All right. The younger crowd. Thank you very much. God's not up in heaven pulling the rug out from under our feet. If God has a plan for you, you pray about it. And you seek godly counsel. But you stay faithful where you are. And then fourthly, we're done. Patiently wait on the Lord. Yeah, (laughs) amen, Brother Doug. I'm with you, brother. Here's the problem. They come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, you're getting old. We don't know how much longer you have, so we need a king. Just if you look at the timelines, it gets a little cloudy. Samuel has another 38 years in him. What's the rush? Why do you need a king today when you still have Samuel? They were like, well, you're getting old. Well, you don't know how old old is. You don't know when God needs this time to happen. You don't don't know God's plan. So you make plans and you make preparations and you make changes. And they're like, well, Samuel, Samuel's ministry is now reaching the midway point. Well, Samuel, you're old. That is their primary reason for needing a king. And what faulty reasoning when God gave him a lengthy ministry. You don't know all the answers. You don't know everything there is to know about tomorrow. So when you're seeking God's will, just wait. Just wait. Just wait. When we get in front of the Lord, it means that He's no longer the one leading us. We do. We jump out in front of Him. We pursue our own minds. We pursue our own thoughts. We jump out in front of Him. If you're in front, that means that God's not leading. So the next time you face any decision, uh, we have a missionary with us tonight. I'm thankful they're here. As you start to make decisions for your ministry, church, what church you're going to plant, what building you're going to have, do these four things. Garrett, as you decide the day that you need to grow, grow up, I, I don't know, that would be great. The day you need to move on from this ministry and plant your own church, do these things. These are ironclad. These are biblical instruction to keep you from catastrophic failure.